if you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's been almost 10 years, actually, since I first preached uh, through the whole letter of First Peter. And we preached a sermon series called Exiles. The title of that, that sermon series was really something that did a work in the church. I know it did a work in my soul. Sandy and I talk about that sermon series probably more than any other uh, over the course of this last decade. I remember the deeply felt sense when we worked through this series on First Peter 10 years ago that the purpose of the series was to prepare this church to suffer well for the sake of of Christ, a deeply felt sense. And in this last decade, I've had time to consider how many of the trials that have come up over the horizon, and the trials particularly of the last three and a half years. And the last three and a half years have been filled with trials. And I wonder, was the church prepared to suffer? Well, we can talk about that more, about how, how, how did we do How did we make it through clinging to the sufferings of Christ and ceasing with sin, as this scripture calls us to today? We've had the chance to see if we were prepared to cling faithfully to the Lord alone in the face of trials of many kinds, right? And I have to tell you, I do give thanks this morning for the fact that we have seen this, even if we haven't seen a radical faithfulness in any one of our own human souls, we have seen that the grace of the Lord is sufficient, right? We have seen that the Lord's grace is abundant and his love is sure and unfailing. But we've also begun to see that the the trials that we experience in this life have a tendency to press into the smallest cracks of our lives. And there they expand to create fissures, opportunities for sin and temptation, do they not? So this morning... While we're encouraging you to the reading of the scriptures, the Bible Together reading plan doesn't begin to tomorrow, which means you have today all free. So I would commend to you 1 Peter. Go home this afternoon, this evening, before you're going to bed. It's only, uh, what, four chapters long, five chapters long. Read that tonight. It is such a powerful letter. It's a letter of a church experiencing disorientation and a sense of exile in the culture. Come on, right? Could you use a letter that speaks to you like that? We've had this set before us, a a, a way to suffer well, but also a way to flourish in gospel hope as we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that that is what you would do by this scripture this morning, that we would be prepared well, that we would cling to the way of the Christ, even and especially today, in his suffering, that we would look forward 
to the reality, the firm, sure, true reality of spiritual hope. And that we would, by faith, grab that hope and pull it into the context of today that we might live for the will of God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us in this word this morning, in your scriptures. I pray that your spirit would work by this word to affect our hearts for transformation, glory, and worship of your name, and the good of your people. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 1 with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, verse 1 forms the core of the message this morning. It forms the core of all, really all of 1 Peter, but certainly this section of Scripture. Look at it with me. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So that's the grounding. This is the grounding reality of all that follows. Since therefore this reality, all the instructions and implications for the life of the disciples that, that flows from this, all the flows from this core doctrinal reality that we follow a Messiah, a Christ who suffered. Everything that follows flows from that doctrinal reality. So last week I said that what is essential for the church is that we would become moored deeply in deep laid footers, all right? Footers that go down and form a solid foundation for whatever structure it is that God would have us walk in in this world as the church together, that we would have grounding realities upon which to establish our lives so that we could become unmovable. Even as there are shifting tides in the culture, the church is unmovable because there are solid footers, clear realities, and so that we would remain open to what we could call cultural refugees, those who have suffered much under sin and idolatry in the world. And they could run into a place that is unshaken. They could run into a place that finds people on their knees in a world that is shaking on their knees, grounded in the solid mooring and truth of Christ. And here's the grounding reality that keeps everything moored laid out for us today. Christ suffered. That is one of the footings that is laid for our Faith. Today we consider the instruction and implication of a church that is grounded in the reality of a suffering Messiah. Now, you and I may be, if you're familiar with the gospel, you might be, well, of course, of course. Friends, that's not just a natural reality. That's actually shocking that the Savior of the world would be someone who died. And then we have this. Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is a, the instruction that stands on the ground of the suffering of Christ. So Christ suffered. That's the grounding footer of reality. And out of that clear doctrinal reality, we have an instruction to arm yourselves with the same way of the thinking. That, that is, the church is to consider 
have the mind conceive of itself in a way that is grounded in the suffering of our Savior. This is the instruction. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then we have this next phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So this is the implication or the result. We have the grounding doctrinal reality, the suffering of Christ. We have the instruction, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then we have this incredible motivating result or implication that if you're armed with the mind of Christ, if you find yourself well prepared when suffering comes, you will also find yourself confirmed in the reality that you have ceased from sin. Filled rather not with sin, but rather with a passion for the will of God in the face of suffering. So here's where we go. In this, the instruction for us is since Christ suffered, arm yourselves. This is so important. We, we love to be told what to do. Now you're like, no, I don't. Yeah, you do. You love to know the clear instructions so you know that you're good and righteous. We love to know the rules so that we can establish ourselves as great and mighty according to whatever the rule set is. We love to be told by God what to do and then go and do it and so that we can show just how great we are. But that's actually not the way that the teachings of the Scriptures go. The teachings of the Scriptures are not simply instructions. They are grounded realities with necessary implications for our lives. The grounded reality, when it says, since and therefore... I could have used either one of those. It would have been enough. But he uses both of them. Since and therefore Christ suffered, arm yourselves. The real instruction is, do you know that? Do you know that Christ suffered? There are two aspects of the suffering of Christ that create and inform a life of a Christian. There is the once and for all implication. And, and 1 Peter is filled with sentences like this. You can actually go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Just a couple of verses before. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What we're told here is Christ also suffered once for sins, once the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, the suffering of Christ worked. The suffering of Christ did something. It actually accomplished what is finished because Christ suffered once for all. The righteous has died for the unrighteous so that the unrighteous will not die as a consequence of judgment for their sin, but rather live. This is the gospel that's proclaimed. The suffering of Christ means death of the flesh. But it also means... In that scripture, in, verse, in chapter 3, it also means life in the Spirit. We're going to see that same pattern in the end of our text today. So that is one aspect of the suffering of Christ that we're to remember. Once and for all, it worked. Like it actually did something that is finished. It accomplished atonement, redemption, cleansing of sin. But there's also an example that is set for the Christian a walk that over and over again the church walks in throughout the whole of Christian history. Look at verse 1 again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves 
with the same way of thinking. I want you to pull up a, a visual image with me, okay? Envision a large, dense, treacherous forest. Like, you know, five minutes in any direction from a Florida interstate, okay? And, and you just wander off into that swamp. Now, one knows that there is a kingdom, glory, and feasting, and rest on the other side of this dense forest. And you know that in that kingdom, there is a wise, gracious king on the other side. But there is no path through the forest. What's required? Well, what is required is we need somebody to go ahead and beat out a path to beat down the bush and to take the pain of the thorns and the brambles as he trods his way to make a path through the forest to the other side and the kingdom that is found there. Friends, that is precisely what the Lord did. He carved forth a path of great suffering to that kingdom. And he removed everything that would kill the believer, body and soul, so that they might arrive on the other side. But it is still a path of suffering. Yeah, he's cleared it for us, but it's still a path of suffering. It's still through a fourth. It's still a path of, path of suffering and service and sacrifice. But the way to glory is clear for us. Every other path around the forest, nope, not that. Stopping, pitching a tent in the midst of the forest, that's not it. Not another path of suffering and asceticism in the midst of the forest. No, those are all paths of destruction. But Jesus, the suffering Messiah, has walked a particular path, a particular road that he has called his disciples to follow him on. It's a well-trodden path, and it's been traveled by every single saint who has gone before us. It's a well-trodden path. Underbrush has been beaten down. The brambles have been pushed aside. The way has been made easier for us, for the church that has gone before us on this path, but it's still a path of suffering. And the, the course, though a path of suffering, is also no longer a mystery. We know the will of God. We now know how to walk, and that's the point. There's, there's no way for the path of suffering not to be a path of suffering, but it is it's a path with a purpose. The point is not to enjoy your time on the path. It's still a path of suffering. The point is the destination where you're going. So lift up your eyes, keep looking down the path, walk with Christ. But the path has been revealed, clearly mapped out for all who would follow him. So what does the path look like? What is this way of thinking that we're supposed to arm ourselves for on this path of suffering? I would go to Philippians chapter 2, and I would encourage you, you can go and flip over there if you'd like. We'll be there for just a second. There's an incredible number of, of similarities between Philippians 2 and what is spoken of here in 1 Peter 4. Philippians 2 verse 5, I mean, it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Man, that sounds like arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, doesn't it? Philippians gives us essentially the same instruction then just a few verses later in Philippians 2 verse 8, it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Philippians gives even greater insight into the way of thinking. What is, what is the mind of Christ? He's concerned for the will of the Father. He's obedient 
to the way of redemption, even if it means death. And oh, he asked questions, didn't he? He spent time in the garden calculating the costs, and he went nonetheless. Friends, the cross was not an accident. It's where Jesus was going. And he went there obedient, a concern for the will of the Father. We're going to see that same concern in verse 2 of our passage in 1 Peter. And there's an understanding that to be human is to be a servant of God. See, Jesus knew that. He actually took on flesh. He, he did not grasp at his divine nature, but took on the human nature. He took on flesh and walked in obedience to his flesh's maker, to the divine. He humbled himself, becoming obedient, it says. You see, we are not God. We are the willing servants of a God of steadfast love and mercy. This is what it means to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ and understanding that God loves to exalt those who humble themselves before him. And that's what he did with Christ, isn't it? And we're supposed to honor, we're supposed to adopt that same mind. Philippians chapter two, verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus suffered and was exalted by the Father. Arm yourself with that mind. Surely, he who has opened the way and he whose sacrifice alone worked to bring us to God is exalted in the highest place. This is Jesus. But we who follow him, who arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, are also lifted up from the place of the sufferer to the place of the one who is comforted in a kingdom of rest with a good king who is exalted forever. This is what it means to arm ourselves. I'll go to one more scripture. It's one of my favorite regarding the question of suffering. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 describes Jesus as a shame despiser. So relevant to our text this morning. This is essential to arming ourselves with the same way of thinking. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that great kingdom on the other side with a people that he would bring through the path. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is very aware of the shame. He's very aware of the suffering. But as he is aware of it, he counts it as nothing. He gives it no credit. He sees it, but he despises it. We've seen how this plays itself out for the one whose hope is in the gospel. Just last week and over the course of the last few weeks, we were in Romans 1. And in Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I do not despise the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We have no cause for shame because what Christ has secured, that is salvation for everyone who believes, is secure indeed. We have no cause for shame in Christ, and so we despise shame in this world. We have hope. Jesus has accomplished the purpose of his suffering. Salvation is secure. So what does it mean? Listen, though we too, who cling to the will 
of God in a crooked generation will suffer like him, we will surely be saved. Not by our suffering, but by his. We will surely be saved. Now, we come to what caught my attention and why I wanted to go to this passage today. Verse 1, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What? What does that mean? I mean, I would love that. That would be amazing. What does that look like? The instruction is to arm yourselves. This is, it's, the instruction, it does not say cease from sin. And it's, that says that elsewhere. <laughs> All right? But that's not the logic of our passage today. The logic of our passage today is arm yourselves with the way of Christ who suffered. The instruction is not go suffer. There are many ways to suffer, and not all the ways to suffer are suffering without sin. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, how much of your suffering has ended with more cursing and bitterness, right? It's not a ceasing of sin, to suffer. That's why the instruction is not go stub your toe and then you'll be sinless. It'll be great. It's not how it works. Not in my house. You know, you know that what you cherish, what you cherish and and what you idolize, when you cherish it and idolize it and it is removed and denied to you, you don't cease to sin, but you fit and Rage. That's one of the ways that we suffer is in our sin. And we, we fit and we rage when we don't get what our sin promises. But sin never delivers on its promises. Now, this isn't a call to go and suffer. And this isn't a description that every time you suffer, this is a way of ceasing to sin. There are lots of ways to suffer. This is not the suffering that's being described in 1 Peter. Peter is describing a sort of suffering that the believer has for doing what is good. How do I know that? Just a couple of verses before it says that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, unpacks an argument for suffering for doing good. It culminates in 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it's clear, you can suffer for doing evil. Like you can. And clearly that's not a way to cease from sin, right? But there is a way to suffer for doing good. That's what's been held out to us. So if we arm ourselves to adopt the will of God as our own, and then if in the pursuit of, of that which is good, surely the, the will of God, the will of God is what is good for us. If the pursuit of what is good, according to God's providence, leads us in a path of suffering, we will be prepared to walk in God's will nonetheless. Because what's our pursuit? The avoidance of suffering? No. No, that's a, we're, we're neither trying to pursue avoidance of suffering and we're not trying to pursue suffering itself. What are you pursuing the whole time? The mind of Christ. And what's the mind of Christ? The will of God. So if you put on the mind of Christ, which is the pursuit of the will of God, and in the pursuit of God, you suffer according to God's providence, you won't cease. You will press on in the pursuit of the will of God. 
You see, the purpose of the suffering is to bring Christ-like perspective to the circumstance of impending suffering. The purpose of this passage is to bring a Christ-like perspective to our minds, to a people of impending suffering. I've said it a dozen times over the last decade. I do think that we live in a distinct moment in the history of the West. We're in a moment that I just can't describe with any other way than than in in sense of impending suffering. Not long ago, there were many cultural and social advantages to a life that basically aligned to a rightly ordered creation. Like there were benefits socially to, to living essentially a Ten Commandment sort of life. So that is, as a Christian who fashions his life around the teaching of Scripture, that Christian may find that he also flourishes in his social context, in a world that's basically rightly ordered. Well, this is what has been so disorienting to me in recent decades. I'm sitting in my chair, and and I'll read something, I'll experience something, I'll have an interaction in a public place, and I'll think, what? What just happened? I was not ready for that. Like, my experience of life up to that moment did not prepare me for how disordered that happened. I grew up experiencing a certain right order in my community, not only around believers. I didn't grow up in some sort of Christian enclave. Uh, There was a certain order to my community itself. I think many of you know what I'm talking about. But this just isn't my experience anymore. It's not my daily experience. Experience. There's a sense of disorder that also leaves me with a sense of impending suffering. Because where there is disorder, the believer who aligns himself to the way of God's order will surely experience friction with what is taking place around him, will he not? That's what I'm talking It's not a sense of an impending doom, like like someone's going to let off a nuclear bomb or something, like somehow sort of prescient prophecy. No, it's just an observation that when there is a disorder to things, and then you live your life rightly ordered, there will be a friction in the community. So Peter, who is watching a people experiencing this very thing, He holds out an encouragement, an implication for arming yourselves with the mind of Christ. And he says, start to think like Jesus. And know that if you start to think like the Jesus who suffered, there is a result when suffering comes. And surely it will in a disordered community. When suffering comes, you will have ceased from sin. To cease from sin is to live for the will of God. Let me communicate this point briefly. We've already begun to see this, and we'll unpack it further in just a few moments. But there are various kinds of suffering. We've already seen it. But there is a suffering that Peter is addressing that is the suffering of disassociating from sinful patterns and then suffering social consequences. I want to say that again. This is the the suffering that Peter's talking about. He, He unpacks it numerous times in the letter. There is a suffering that comes from disassociating from our own past sinful patterns. 
and a suffering that comes with current social issues that flow from that disassociation. They were suffering the loss of old entertainments. However sinful and idolatrous they were in the past, they still experienced the pleasures of the flesh. And they lost those old pleasurable fleshly passions and ways. The point is this, the decision to suffer was also a decision to cease from sin. Do you see the connection I'm making? Their their suffering itself came from a decision to cease from sinful ways. And it brought about more suffering. The logic of the passage, I think, is clear. It's not to say that suffering automatically makes anybody not sin. Neither is it to say that the one who suffers will never again sin and be perfectly pure. Otherwise, a psalm like what we read this morning wouldn't make any sense, would it? It wouldn't even be in the hymn book. The point is that the very turning from human passions to the will of God, even in the face of suffering, and then right through the suffering, confirms to the soul, listen, a radical break from sin has surely taken place. The one who turns from sin and has counted the cost of that turning and then willingly suffers what that turning means in the social circumstance, and we'll see what that is in just a second, has certainly made some sort of radical break from sin itself. Sin does not have a hold anymore. No, the mind of Christ and the will of God has gripped you so that even suffering in this flesh doesn't dissuade you. You have your eyes fixed on the joy set before you, which is the mind of Christ. Now, there is a sentence, verse three, I just find confoundingly amazing. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And if you're confused as to what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Read it again now that you know those words. For the time that is past suffices. What a powerful word. What an evangelical word this morning. I'm talking to every single soul here, including my own. Hear the preaching of the gospel with that word. Hear this sinner. Yesterday, and all of the days that came before it are enough. Well done in all your sin. You filled up all those days. The fullness of days are sin of sin have been indulged, and it suffices. But I want to party my way through high school. <laughs> I mean, come on. Cut me a little bit of slack. I'm just a kid. But what's the point of going off to college if I can't experience freedom and all that I've been longing for there and all the opportunities that have been denied me in my home that are now open for the indulging of the flesh? But life is hard enough at work, raising kids, dealing with the day-to-day. I need a little bit of release. I need a little sensual pleasure for my aching flesh. 
You don't know what my days are like. And Peter says, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, it is enough. Yesterday and all the days before are enough. Today is not the day for sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Today is the day to arm yourselves. Laying around like there is not a war going on in the passions of the flesh, that's done. Do you hear me? I'm talking to you. Sometimes people after the service say, I feel like you were talking to me. Yes. Like today for sure. I'm talking to you. Are you counting? Are you doing business with your plan for indulgence? And do you hear God's own word to you? It's enough. It's enough. It's plenty. You do not need more. The time for the present, today, this morning, right now, is for the will of God. There's never enough time for that. You don't have time to waste today on, on things that are fleeting and falling off and will never bring you through this forest to the other side. Today is the day for the will of God. Arm yourselves to take up the mind of Christ and his way, the momentary passions of the flesh, the real possibility of suffering in the flesh. Today is the day to take up the will of God and the mind of Christ. Well, what do the Gentiles do? It's all of what the whole of media and culture give approval to. It's all of what our flesh desires to do. This isn't out there, it's in me. It's in you. When I said I'm talking to you, everybody felt it, didn't you? You know what it is. Oh, I know what it is. Holy living will necessarily require living against the flow of mankind. Mankind lives according to the desires of the flesh, human passion. And all of these are the imaginations of our idolatry. Man, are we creative with our sin. Last week, I suggested that we create little fairy tale worlds in which we can indulge in sin without consequence. They're fairy tale worlds. It's a daydream of the fulfillment of our every fleshly desire, but God knows the real world. And His will for you is that you would live in it, the real, rightly ordered world. The disciples of Jesus Christ live in the reality of a universe designed by a creator. We know that our bodies are made to live for more than ourselves. It's not just idolatry, it's disorder, and it's enough that we would live to ourselves. We're made to worship God, not to serve the appetites of our flesh. It's enough. Aren't you indulged already? And here's what's going to happen. If you heard me, and if you heard the, the evangelical thrust, a call to Christ and his steadfast love for mercy, sinner, if you heard that, 
God is so kind to give us more words in this text. He tells us what's going to happen. Look what's going to happen. Verse 4. With respect to this, all these things that, that you're done with today. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Today, not tomorrow. I didn't say Monday. Today, yesterday was enough. Don't give another day. Don't give today. Today, when they find out, we get to the real heartbeat and the heartache of this passage, that there will be an increasingly stark contrast between the world and its ongoing willful debauchery and its human passions being played out in our neighborhoods and in our communities, and they will be surprised when they see you this afternoon or tomorrow morning. You drink, but you don't get drunk? Why? It's legal to smoke pot, but you remain sober? You choose not to be entertained by the newest streaming show with all the ways that it degrades the body, even though it's what everybody's talking about, and it's hilarious. You hear the jokes, and some of them are actually funny, and you think, am I missing out? The whole dating scene has become a hookup culture, but you're going to deny sensuality and seek friendship? Friendship? What does that satisfy? What about a hookup? Even more, you intend yourself for marriage? Don't you mean that if you get married, you'll probably wind up having kids and then you wind up sacrificing your entire life for those little beasts? Yeah, that's what it means. Yeah, they're going to be surprised at a rightly ordered life. They won't stop there. It's such a small step from surprise to maligning. Remember the words of Romans 1.32. In the end of Romans, it says, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You not only do them, not only do you, do you choose not to participate in the ways of the world, you also fail to give approval to the ways of the world. You see, we live in a world that's supposedly tolerant. We do. It claims that you can do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. Go ahead. Do what you want. I mean, isn't that the whole point? Do what you want to do that God thing? Do the God thing if it works for you. But here's where the world starts to get really upset. It's not so much that you don't participate in the human passions, but that your failure to participate displays a tacit disapproval. See, it's not enough to do them. What is required is that we give approval to those that do. They're used to those who both participate and to give approval. But here's what the scripture says. Before you're like, oh man, I don't, I don't want to be disapproved. I don't want to be maligned. Listen, he continues. Verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. Peter gives us another reason for not giving in to suffering and to press right through it, taking on the mind of Christ. We don't need to defend ourselves. You don't need to defend yourself against the maligning that's coming today, tomorrow. He will judge. 
and he will judge the living and the dead. And this is why the gospel was preached. Look at verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, the judging of the living and the dead, they might live in the way God does. It seems like an esoteric doctrinal oddity. What does it mean that the gospel is preached even to those who are dead? Friends, this is not a doctrinal oddity. This is of practical concern, especially if you heard the call to cease. Here's Paul Helm, a commentator on this passage, says, what we need to remember is that the early church had many questions about their family members and friends who had died after the coming to faith in Christ. I mean, what does it mean? They, they, weren't they supposed to be saved, Right? When they placed their faith in, in God, and yet they died. How does that work? How does this whole suffering thing work at all? It seems like my, my brother, my sister in Christ, just lived their whole life for the will of God and suffered for it, even maligning in the community, and yet they still ended up dead. What does this mean? Is there any hope? What good is there? <laughs> I found it interesting when I read that. Paul says that, the early church struggled with those questions. Oh, that early church, they didn't really know anything. No, I struggle with those questions. That's why we need funerals. We need to go to remember that our brother and sister is dead and do business with that reality. We need to, this scripture draws us face to face with reality that death remains in the flesh, and we're to do questioning work there. Our passage this morning brings us face to face, acknowledging that reality, the reality of death in the flesh. The gospel was preached so that those who are now dead, having received the judgment of the fall, like Adam received, and all who come after him, that is death in the flesh, have also received life in the Spirit. That's why funerals are not simply opportunities to celebrate the life of the individual who died, but rather a place where a sermon needs preached. A sermon needs preached to those who remain to say, this one is dead in the flesh and you will be too. And that's why today it's been enough. Cast aside the sin. Our hope is that this one is alive in the spirit, and that's your hope too. 1 Peter 3.18, again, Christ suffered once for all for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus suffered death, and so will we, but Jesus took up his life in resurrection, and so will we with him. In the case of Jesus, the question at the forefront of all of watching heaven and all of the earth was, will he accomplish the rescue mission? He died, and the sky grew dark, and he was put in a tomb, and all of creation waited. And the angels longed to look into the manifold wisdom of God in this glorious accomplishment of grace, because the Messiah is dead. But then he rose, and he is alive. And he's established a kingdom and he's with his people in their journey of suffering 
to that eternal kingdom. You see, in the case of the believer, there is no question. There's no mystery. There's no wondering. Victory is as sure as the resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ. You see, before Jesus, we hadn't seen it. But upon the resurrection of Jesus, we see victory. Some of you are still debating right now. Are previous days really enough? Friend, you can be absolutely sure. Because Christ has died. And Christ is risen. And there is salvation for you who place your faith in him. Today, the underbrush has been beaten down. The brambles have been pushed to the side. The path is still suffering. But the course in this world, taking on, arming ourselves with the mind of Christ, is clear. Heavenly Father, I pray that this word that is so clear should be so clear to our minds. Such a logical argument in this text would become clear to our befuddled souls. Confirm to us whatever suffering and maligning we would endure from friends and neighbors and community and even from our own fleshes crying out, what are you doing to me? We had plans for some fun. I pray that you would do business with our soul. Confirm to us your truth. Confirm to us the grace of Jesus Christ. It is enough and it is bought and paid for. Salvation, forgiveness is sure and life is secure. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving grace, keeping grace, preserving and comforting grace to your church today. Lord, we pray in Jesus, our crucified and resurrected Messiah's name we pray. Amen.